Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Ron Klain. Ron served as chief of staff to both Vice President Gore and Vice President Biden before being appointed by President Obama as his Ebola czar in 2014. He's now an advisor to the Biden campaign who appeared at the Democratic National Convention. He's an amazing person, and he's got amazing firsthand insight into the problems and opportunities facing America today. Ron Klain will brief President Obama frequently and focus on where the government response to Ebola is now and where it needs to be as the virus continues its lethal march across West Africa. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. There is no Democratic or Republican approach to fighting infectious disease only sound and unsound measures. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. This is their new hoax. Now to the staggering new number from the CDC warning that as many as 200,000 lives could be lost by Labor Day. As President Trump spreads misinformation on the pandemic, Joe Biden today said the country can't fight the virus if they can't trust the president. People are losing faith in what the president says. My name is Ron Klain. I was the White House Ebola response coordinator under President Obama. And I think that President Trump's mishandling of the COVID crisis is the worst presidential disaster in American history. Sorry, not sorry. We're now about three quarters of a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Nearly 200,000 Americans have lost their lives to this disease. And then at the RNC, it was just loudly, I stress the word loudly proclaimed that Donald Trump's actions saved thousands of lives. Did Donald Trump save lives? Well, I think we know that his mismanagement cost a lot of lives. And so we should go back to the very beginning on this, which is that Donald Trump likes to say no one saw this coming. But of course, a lot of people saw this coming. President Obama, Vice President Biden, after the end of the Ebola epidemic, put together a playbook for their successors to prepare. I retweeted a tweet from Joe Biden last night from October. October 2019, where he said, we are not ready for a pandemic if we were to have one. So the warnings were there, and the warnings in Trump's own administration were there. His national security team was telling him this thing was coming, it was getting worse. He really blinked. He blinked in January. He blinked in February. He was busy telling people the Chinese government was doing a good job. He said that all Americans owed a debt of gratitude to the Chinese leadership for their handling of COVID. And so he ignored the opportunity to get the country ready. When we knew for sure this was coming in January and February, he just basically dismissed the thing. And then when March, when we really started to get hit hard, he also just made a bunch of mistakes. He blew the testing solutions to this. He blew the opportunity to get things closed down safely, to then be careful on the reopening side, to give help and guidance clearly to the people who are trying to reopen. So at every step along the way, Alyssa, there's just been one mistake after another. And the bottom line is this. We're having this conversation. It's late. 
August, early September. Look, the bottom line is the world got hit by this, and that's not Trump's fault, okay? But today, yesterday, for example, in the five largest European countries, the UK, Italy, Spain, France, and Germany, combined the same size as the US, yesterday about 50 people died in those five countries. Over 1,000 died in the United States. And that difference, that difference rests on Donald Trump's shoulders. I, as an outsider watching this, was one thing. But then I was hit and I got sick. And I would not have believed how the testing was botched if I didn't get tested twice in a month's period and had both tests come back negative. And it was right around the time when they were talking about how there weren't enough swabs. And he was talking about Q-tips at one point during a press conference to be going through this. And to see it and to have it personally affect me and my family. And by the way, I'm very grateful it was me and not my children or my parents. But then to also know the fact that I am so blessed to have the insurance that I have, to have the doctors that I have, and I'm sitting there and I'm gasping for breath. And all I keep thinking about is how are people going through this alone without healthcare insurance, without doctors, without access to tests? I mean, for how long could we not get a test? And it was that weird period where you had to be in contact with someone. I mean, it was so mis handled. And please walk us through the Obama administration's response to Ebola. And also, if you can just describe what Ebola is, what effect it had in Africa, and just how contagious it is so people understand that this is not the easy pandemic that Obama was able to basically squash very quickly. Sure. So Ebola broke out. There have been periodic outbreaks, but never really a major epidemic of Ebola until 2014, where you had this massive epidemic of Ebola in three West African countries. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa is spiraling out of control, according to health officials who are warning. And this is largely due to dysfunctional healthcare systems and rampant fear. The fear and mistrust took a violent turn in Liberia's capital, Monrovia. An angry crowd, many of them armed with clubs, raided an Ebola isolation ward in the city's largest slum. They were shouting that Ebola did not exist and was a hoax by the Liberian president to get money. The mob looted the clinic, removing contaminated medical items and soiled bedding. Over 20 patients infected with the virus fled the treatment center. Some have been rehospitalized though health officials remain terrified that the infection could spread across the entire area. It spread wildly, it spread aggressively, and it looked like a million people were going to die from Ebola in these three countries. These are three reasonably small countries. A million people would have been a catastrophic loss of life. The largest city in any of them was Conakry, which is about 900,000 people. So it was a serious, serious crisis. And of course, as it continued to spread in West Africa, there was the risk that it would spread outside of West Africa, spread to nearby Nigeria, which is a gigantic country with a major global super city, spread onto Europe and to the United States as well. That was one of the dangers here. And so in the fall of 2014, President Obama said that we were going to take a all of government response. We're going to put every resource the U.S. government had on two big things. One, helping the people in West Africa fight this disease. And then two, get the U.S. ready and protected for cases we would see here. And we needed to do both those things. We needed to help the people in West Africa 
out of humanitarian reasons, of course, but also because the only way we were going to stay safe in America was to try to keep the disease in check in Africa. We also knew that cases would come here occasionally, and we needed to be ready for those as well and to keep the occasional case here in the U.S. from becoming an epidemic here in the U.S., which obviously is what we wanted to avoid. And so the President Obama did really everything at his disposal. We sent 3,000 troops to West Africa. We sent 10,000 contractors and volunteers. We set up hospitals. We set up treatment units. We set up testing centers there. And even as we did that to help the people of West Africa, and I think it's always important to remember that the West Africans were the heroes of this story. They fought this disease in their countries. They put their lives on the line. They took the most risks. We did a great job of helping them, of giving them materials and expertise and support. But this is their heroism that fought this disease with a lot of help from the United States. Here in America, though, we had to get ready. We had to get tests ready. We had to get the potential to treat people ready. We had to get medical centers with the specialized expertise to treat someone with a disease like Ebola ready. We had to deal with the fact that people did indeed contract the disease. So other people were suspected of having the disease. They had to be identified and tested and screened and all these things. And so we had to get all that ready on a very, very large scale. Now, I do have to say, Alyssa, in fairness, COVID was a much bigger problem than Ebola. It was spread much more around the world. It was much harder to contain. This is a bigger challenge, no question, than Ebola. But Ebola was a serious challenge. We ended up with two Americans dying from Ebola. We took the death toll in West Africa down from a projected toll of a million to about 12,000. Wow. That's still a tragedy, but a lot less severe than it could have been. And why? What's the answer to all that? There was no, and this is the thing about Trump, there was no one magic answer. There was no one press conference that solved it. It was a many, many, many step process that President Obama said, hey, let's go do everything we can to fight it. And it all started, of course, with science, not with denial, not with fiction, with President Obama saying, there's Tony Fauci, there's these other doctors, Tom Frieden and Nikki Lurie, other bunch of doctors. These are the experts. Their expertise is going to drive our strategy. We're going to be candid. We're going to be transparent. We're going to listen to the experts. We're going to do what it takes to get this under control overseas and to protect the American people here at home. It doesn't sound like that's a plan that a leader wouldn't think of. That sounds like common sense. I'm curious, though, you have this extremely deadly disease that all of a sudden arrives on American shores. How does an administration or how did the Obama administration find out that someone brought Ebola into our country? We found out because someone showed up in a hospital in Dallas where no one was really expecting it to arrive. It's not a major city of immigration from West Africa into the United States, Dallas, Texas, but someone did show up there, had some of the symptoms, was misdiagnosed at first, the first case ever in the U.S., ultimately properly diagnosed and treated. Unfortunately, that was one of the two people who died. He just was diagnosed too late. The latest on the first case of Ebola to be diagnosed here in the United States. At this hour, health officials say the unidentified patient is fighting for his life at a hospital in Dallas. The CDC confirms the man tested positive for the virus, but is unsure how he became infected. He took a flight from Liberia to Dallas on September 19th to visit family. Four or five days later, the man started to feel sick. Right now, the CDC says there is, quote, zero risk to others who were on board that same flight. The agency says the man did not show symptoms at the time and was not contagious. Officials are also working to quickly trace the patient's path and to determine with whom he may have had close contact. 
that was a big flare, a wake-up call that, look, these cases will come here. We're going to see others. In the end, we put together a screening system where anyone who came to our country from West Africa was screened in the airports where they arrived. They were gone through a bunch of tests, and then they were identified as a potential case and contacted every single day for the potential infection period of 21 days to make sure they weren't running a temperature, they didn't have any symptoms. If they ever did, they were immediately taken to a testing center where they were isolated and tested until we got back those test results. And that process is how we identified Dr. Craig Spencer, who was a person who had fought Ebola in West Africa, a real hero, an unbelievable person, came back from fighting Ebola in West Africa to his home in New York City and wound up developing the symptoms and was taken to Bellevue Hospital in New York, the oldest hospital in America, by the way, and was treated successfully and recovered and has now gone to do many great works since then. curious to know, what part does the CDC play in all of that? You're saying people get screened at the airport. Then let's say they come down with symptoms. They go to the hospital. How are hospitals made aware that they should be screening for Ebola and the protocol to do such a thing? So what we did, Alyssa, was we set up in each of the major cities in the country and each of the cities where a large number of people came from West Africa, we set up designated specialized hospitals where we had sent the CDC to train the hospital staff as to what to do if they had such a specialized case. So we anticipated where the people would come. And then when we talked to people who came from West Africa, we told them, what's your final destination? Oh, you're going to Minneapolis. This is the specialized hospital. Mm. Oh, you're going to Atlanta. This is the specialized Mm. hospital. And then those hospitals had the staff that was prepared. They had the staff that was trained. They had the various testing equipment, the things they needed to get the test done. So the Center for Disease Control has been the world's leading infectious disease experts. Their expertise is exceptional. And I think if you let those people do their jobs, you don't put politics on top of it, you don't put denial on top of it, they can get our frontline healthcare workers trained and ready if you have a targeted, determined strategy for doing this. Look what happened with COVID by comparison, right? Which is that when the senior person at the Centers for Disease Control, the chief expert on respiratory ailments, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, said in late February, I think it's not a question of if, but when COVID becomes a crisis in the US, I think it's going to have a major disruption in American lives. She spoke the truth in late February, and Donald Trump basically told people to silence her. And we've basically have not seen Dr. Messonnier in public since then. I mean, she is the leading expert on respiratory ailments at the Center for Disease Control. How do you silence a public servant like that? And I have a Dr. Fauci pillow in my office, so this is nothing against Dr. Fauci, but I even feel like they silenced him to an extent. Well, they silenced Dr. Fauci to a very great extent. He's not allowed to appear on network television. But how can they control that? Well, they're in charge. Look, in the end, Alyssa, I don't want to get too much to the bottom line. But look, the bottom line is that if people want a better government, they need a better president. And there's just no way around the fact that if you have the wrong president at the time of a crisis, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men 
really can't solve these problems. And so Dr. Fauci, I worked with him every day on the Ebola response. He's one of my personal heroes. He's a mentor. He's a great human being. He's a great expert, but he is not the president. And in the end, the president decides what's presented to the public. The president decides whether or not we're going to invest in testing, whether or not we're going to be honest with people about the problems we're facing, whether or not we're going to have clear standards about closing. Look, think about what happened on April 16th. Tony Fauci stood in the White House briefing room and said, hey, these are the standards for what states should do before they safely reopen. Here's what level the disease has to be at. Here are the steps they should take. He laid it all out. Okay. And what happened? The next day, the president was out there tweeting, hey, liberate Minnesota, liberate oh Michigan. Oh my God, I know. You know. Right? And so what can Dr. Fauci do in the face of that? He can only do what he can do, which is to speak truthfully and directly to the American people. But the president ultimately is in charge. We want a better COVID response. We need to change presidents. How dangerous was Trump pulling support for who? For the World Health Organization? I think it's a very, very unfortunate thing. I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. Now, the good news is that Trump's announcement that we're pulling out of WHO required a one-year advance notice. And so before the U.S. is actually gone from WHO, we're going to have this election. And if Joe Biden wins, he's going to rescind that withdrawal, and the U.S. will remain in the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is not perfect. It has a lot of problems. It has a lot of bureaucracy. It gets things wrong. But I would think having some sort of global response or access to what's happening globally would probably be important when you're trying to prevent and catch a pandemic. Right. So it's not perfect, but it is the World Health Organization we have. We have to work with it. We have to make it better. I mean, I think that there's no alternative. You cannot build a wall, metaphorical or real, that's going to protect the American people from disease. We're interconnected with the world. We're interconnected with the planet. And if we don't have a global solution to fighting COVID, if we're not part of that solution, then the disease is just going to come back here again and again and again. And so we have to work with the WHO to try to fight this disease around the world, to try to get a vaccine solution for the whole world and make sure that that's the best way to keep the American people safe. I'm very impassioned about this because it hits so home for me. Do you think it's going to get better? I mean, the Trump administration, he keeps saying that it's just going to disappear. Does something like this just disappear? No, no. There is no miracle. There is no magic. There is no wishing it away. There is science, though. So let's talk about some of the good news or the opportunities here, which is progress is being made on a vaccine. I think that's very exciting. Progress is being made on different treatments and therapeutics. That's very exciting. But what we need, Alyssa, is science, not politics to drive that. When the president stands up and announces to people, I've got some big new miracle cure and it's going to fix all the problems overnight, that not only is wrong, it undermines confidence in things that actually do work. It's like the boy who cries wolf, right? And so what you're seeing is, increasing percentages of Americans saying, hey, when the vaccine comes out, I'm not going to get it. 
I'm not going to give it to myself. I'm not going to give it to my kids because I just don't trust what I'm being told. And so Trump's conduct of this is not only having a corrosive effect while he's president, it's going to have a corrosive effect in the future. Because as we try to persuade people, no, we really have tested this. This vaccine really is safe. It really is effective. People are going to be skeptical because of all the lies they've been told by the president over these past seven or eight months. And I think that's a very bad problem. And I also think that I don't trust that he's going to distribute it the way it needs to happen. I think that there needs to be a real plan about that. Like the most vulnerable need to get that first. They need to get that vaccine or the treatment, whatever, first. But it just, by all of his past actions, it seems like he is going to wind up giving it to the rich and the white first. And we're not going to be able to get ahead of it. Right. Well, I think there's three dangers in that regard, Alyssa. The first is politics, which is we know that when it came to the kind of aid that people needed during the earliest phases of the pandemic, sending ventilators, sending respirators, sending equipment, Trump avowedly said, I'm sending it to the red states, not the blue states. I'm sending it to <gasps> oh, governors who are God. nice to me, not governors who are mean to me. Don't send anything to that lady in Michigan. So that's one problem is the politics problem. The second problem is, as you say, the biases. I mean, your illness shows that this pandemic can strike anyone, but it doesn't strike everyone equally. We're all at risk, but what we know is some populations have been especially at risk. African Americans, Hispanics, indigenous people have suffered from this virus much worse than others. And that does not to minimize the suffering of everyone else, because everyone who gets this, this is a horrible ordeal. But we know is some communities have been harder hit. And will Trump focus on that? Will he have a special strategy for that? And then the third problem is just chaos and disorganization. Getting vaccinations to 300 million people, that's a big project. It's a complicated project. I'm an ambassador for UNICEF, and I go and do vaccination projects throughout the world. And it is very hard, especially in the most rural areas, to be able to get medication to people. Even with things like neglected tropical diseases, where there are effective, basically, cures with very cheap medication, we still can't get those in the most remote areas where you see things like elephantiasis or river blindness because there's no means to get them into the remote locations. And here in this country, as we were talking about earlier, the fiasco with testing is a bit of a warning sign about what might happen with vaccines. If we couldn't get people tested, if we couldn't get the tests where they needed to be, we couldn't get people their test results, is this administration capable of administering the vaccine? And one more thing on this, there is the question of who will pay for the vaccinations and how we'll absorb the costs. Now, Vice President Biden has said that the vaccine should be free for everyone. Well, of course and it should be. The, of course it should be. And we know that the Affordable Care Act makes basic preventative care affordable to many Americans. But as you well know, President Trump is in the Supreme Court right now trying to get the court to throw out the Affordable Care Act. They're hearing that case the week after Election Day in 2020. So if Trump gets his way, if Trump wins, will the Affordable Care Act go away? Will there be free or reduced cost vaccinations? Will we have this have or have not crisis with this coronavirus vaccination? The other thing I'm terrified of with the ACA is that open enrollment starts two days before the election. And we know that all of the funds have been cut for promotion of the Affordable Care Act. So I'm afraid it's going to get lost in the middle of the election chaos.
I want to just switch gears for a minute. You were chief of staff to both Vice President Gore and Vice President Biden. John Adams once described that office as the most insignificant office that the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Can you tell us what's the difference between 1789 and modern vice presidents? It's a great question. A lot has changed. And really, most of the change started around Vice President Mondale and his work with President Carter in the 1970s, where they really made a decision that he would be part of the administration. Vice President Mondale was the first vice president ever to have an office at the White House. Before that, no vice president even had an office at the White House. And so once we started that practice of having the vice president have an office there, using the vice president to run important projects, the influence of the vice presidency really grew. Al Gore was a big step forward on that when he and President Clinton had such a close partnership. And President Clinton asked Vice President Gore to handle really important things, environmental policy, technology policy, our relationship with Russia, our work with South Africa and its transition to democracy. Vice President Gore had a lot of really important responsibilities. President Clinton trusted him to do that. That continued to progress. And when Joe Biden and Barack Obama took office, President Obama gave Vice President Biden a lot of very important responsibilities, starting with early in the administration, putting him in charge of the Economic Recovery Plan, the Recovery Act, implementing that and getting $800 billion, at that time the largest domestic program in American history, off the ground to create jobs, to be spent without waste, to really help people who needed help in the face of the economic crisis we were in then. And then other significant responsibilities as his vice presidency unfelled. So look, the vice presidency is a very, very important job. Senator Harris is a fantastic choice to do that job. She'll do it in her own way, just like Al Gore and Joe Biden did before her. But I think the partnership between her and Joe Biden is going to be an incredibly effective partnership in the White House. How important is that selection? Can you tell us a little bit about the vetting process? Well, look, the selection is very important because, first of all, it's the first presidential decision that someone makes. We're looking to see, first of all, what kind of president is this person going to be? How do they make decisions? What kind of decisions mm. they make? And I think in Joe Biden's selection of Kamala Harris, you saw him do a couple things you want to see a president do. He picked an incredibly well-qualified person for the job, first and foremost. He showed that, you know, she took some tough punches at him in the campaign. And he was fine. He said, you know what? I want her here because I want someone who's going to speak the truth, who's going to tell it like it is. I'm not Donald Trump. I don't want only yes people around. I don't only want sycophants around. I want someone who, if they think I'm wrong, they're going to say it to my face. Yeah, challenge that's him. Good, that, challenge him, right? I think that's a really, really encouraging thing about the kind of president he's going to be. And of course, the inclusion, the first ever black woman on the ticket, the first ever Asian-American woman on the ticket. This is just shows the kind of conclusive administration he's going to run. So I think the choice is important for what it says about him and the kind of president he'll be. The choice is also really important because of the important role of the vice president. We know that, as I said, in modern times, the vice presidents take on serious responsibilities. They manage large pieces of business in the administration. And having a really solid, competent person with great values in that job's going to make a difference. Look, I just spent some time blaming Donald Trump for the COVID response. It's worth remembering that he put Mike Pence in charge of the COVID response. And so he also bears some responsibility for what we've seen over these past six months. He has been the chair of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The freedom of speech, the right to peaceably assemble is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and uh, we have an election coming up this fall. And uh, President Trump and I believe uh, that uh, taking proper steps as we've created screening at recent events and um, and uh, giving people the very best counsel that we have. We still want to give people the freedom to participate in the political process, and uh, uh, we respect that. 
And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, the breaking news. Two more staffers on the president's advanced team have now tested positive for coronavirus, both attending Trump's rally in Tulsa on Saturday, which brings the total number of staff in Trump's circle to test positive for coronavirus in just over 48 hours to 10, eight campaign staffers and two Secret Service agents. If you have a wrong person as vice president, you get, in part, kind of the results we've seen over the past six months with COVID. If you could give Senator Harris one piece of advice for what's to come, both in like the last couple of months of the election and then the start of her term as vice president, what would that advice be? No, I think that advice would be just to focus on the job, to focus on the task. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of that. She's got a very, very important job, which is to make the case in the campaign for their ticket, make the case for why it's time to change directions in Washington, and then to come in and be part of that change. And it's going to be real challenging. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if they win, they're going to inherit a set of problems, really like anything any president since FDR, maybe even more than that, any president's seen. Ron, I don't know why anyone would want to be president right now. Now, to be honest with you. But then I think about who Joe is as a person and how he will always fight for the underdog and he's been bullied in his own life. And I almost think like he was made for this moment in history. I've known him for 30 years. I feel the same way. I think he would have been a great president anytime, but I think he really is especially the right president for this time. The country's hurting. It needs someone who has compassion who feels loss and knows what loss is going through, someone who's optimistic to kind of get us through this tough time. Sometimes we like outsiders as president. Look, right now we need someone who knows what they're doing starting on day one. We need someone who knows how to get the economy going again, how to attack our racism crisis, how to attack the climate crisis, how to, how to gain, fix our broken immigration gain system. Gain respect throughout the world again. And gain respect throughout the world. So I do really believe that this is a wonderful man, but particularly the right president we need right now. Are you hopeful? What gives you hope? What gives me hope is just seeing all the people doing heroic things every day to fight all these crises. This really struck me, Alyssa, when I was handling the Ebola response. I mean, it was scary and horrible, and this level of suffering and the dangers and the risks were all high. And yet I woke up every day more excited to come to work than any time in my life because the heroism of people in the face of that danger was just stunning to me. You know, Christmas Eve of 2014, it just so happened that based on rotational schedules and whatnot, we brought back the first team of Americans who had staffed the first hospital in West Africa. They came back to the United States on Christmas Eve day. Members of the U.S. Public Health Service, these people don't get a lot of respect. They don't get a lot of prestige. They work in public health on Native American reservations in inner cities. And they were the group that went over to staff the first U.S. built hospital in West Africa. And they came back to this country and because of various rules in their communities and whatnot, they couldn't go home. And so they had to spend Christmas Eve day in Washington, D.C., and Christmas Eve in Washington, D.C. And we brought these men and women to the White House. The White House was dead quiet. No one was there. We brought them to the White House. We gave them a tour. We had dinner with them inside the White House. Just some members of my team and these fantastic people who had sacrificed so much to go fight this disease in mm. West Africa, who mm. were separated from their families. And it was just so inspiring to me to see the kinds of people who are willing to do that work. And that is happening every day in this country right now. Now, I just was asked by The Guardian to write a preface, which they published last week, to the database they've published of the healthcare workers who have died from COVID. We've lost in America a thousand healthcare workers due to COVID because they didn't have gear. 
They didn't have protective equipment. They didn't have the kinds of things we should have provided them. Here in one of the richest countries in the world, we sent nurses and doctors and healthcare workers into hospitals with plastic bags as their protective gear and homemade masks as their protective gear. And a thousand of them have paid with their lives for that. And yet today, thousands of them are going back into hospitals, treating people on the front lines, other frontline workers. I mean, just all these people, I don't know how you can look at that and not feel like their government owes them a lot more, but their heroism is so inspiring and so encouraging about what this country can do if we have the right leadership. Well, thank you for your leadership, Ron, over the years and your service to our country and for being a part of the podcast. I really appreciate you. Thank you. This is the moment Joe Biden waited for for more than 30 years, about to walk up onto that stage to accept his party's nomination for president. I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. His moment arriving amid a pandemic, an economic collapse, and a long overdue call for racial justice in this country. And as he looked out to the fireworks in the sky, his smile covered by his mask. Sharing the stage, his historic choice, his running mate, Senator Kamala Harris. Less than 24 hours later, both of them sitting down with us, wearing masks as they arrived, all of us sitting well more than six feet apart. Well, thank you both for sitting down with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mr. Vice President, as you know, it was more than 30 years ago you first ran for president, 1987. It's now 2020, and you're the candidate of change. I I wonder, after dreaming of that moment for more than three decades, what it was like. Well, you know, uh, we talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have an overwhelming sense of obligation. I mean, whoever wins this election is going to determine the fate of this country for at least a couple decades, and there's a lot at stake. The character of the country is on the ballot. There's so much at stake. And Senator Harris, you've already made history by just being on this ticket. But something you said before you were even chosen, you said, I want him to choose whoever he believes can help him win. You said, it sounds pretty cold-blooded, but that's where I am. That is correct. (laughs) So you're the pick. How are you best suited to help Vice President Biden win? When I think about Joe's life, I think about his career, coupled with my experiences in my career, I think that uh, between us, we have the ability to really meet the American people where they are. Competence matters. You know, when I think of the things people who love Trump say, they always talk about Trump the man and not Trump the chief executive. Almost universally, no one can name anything concrete he's done with which they agree. He tells it like it is, they say. I mean, actually, no, he doesn't. But interesting that it's never, well, his executive orders on blah, blah, blah made a real difference in the world. There is no competence in his government. As far as I can tell, literally nobody in the Trump administration is good at their job. Not on the political side, at least. And where there are people who are good at their jobs, Dr. Fauci, for example, he and his administration officials do everything they can to undermine that competence. It's a willful, intentional choice to be bad at their jobs. And it is literally killing us. It's why the 2020 election is such a clear choice. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris... 
they've been good at everything they've ever done in public life. Truly, competent administrators, effective legislators, they've surrounded themselves with people who are also competent. Isn't that refreshing? Ah, This matters so much. So listen, there is not much time left. Every day is an opportunity to fight for competence in American government. Don't let November 3rd come and go to find us facing four more years of an administration so bad at its job that the world continues to laugh at us. We need you. Get to work. Go to JoeBiden.com and find a way to help. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.